Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Congratulations, you've made it. This is the final episode of the Aotearoa History Show. This time we're going to cast our eyes over the recent past. Well, at least relatively recent. Especially when you remember we started this series a hundred million years ago. Recent history is a little bit tricky. Anything too close to the modern day is, well, it's pretty much the news. Um, To tell good history you often need a bit of distance. It's sort of like putting your face right up close to a painting. You can see all kinds of little details, but it's hard to make out the wider picture until you've taken a few steps back. So we're going to do our best to pick out the most important stuff from the last 40 years. Should be easy enough. Totally. Super straightforward. No pressure at all. I'm William Ray. And I'm Lee Mademan McLaughlin. Welcome to the Aotearoa History Show. We range ourselves without fear beside Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. The New Zealander Hillary has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest. So, we're in the momentous year of 1984. Think leg warmers, Billy T. James, and most notably, the fall of Robert Muldoon's national government and the start of the fourth Labour government under Prime Minister David Lange. This shift in power was really chaotic. Muldoon had called a snap election, so nobody had time to carefully craft policy and explain it to the public, and neither of the big parties really wanted to anyway. And despite losing, Muldoon created something of a constitutional crisis in the days immediately after the election. He blocked the incoming Labour government from devaluing the currency, which very nearly saw New Zealand default on its debts. Muldoon was eventually convinced to back down, but the new Labour government was still left facing massive economic problems. Muldoon's micromanagement, together with a long history of protectionist policies, had left a tangled web of subsidies and taxes and tariffs. Inflation was high and unemployment was reaching levels which hadn't been seen since the Great Depression. But there's a saying in politics, never let a good crisis go to waste. Labour's new finance minister, Roger Douglas, seized the moment. And over the next few years, he and a group of reforming Labour MPs completely reshaped the New Zealand economy. They eliminated subsidies, floated the dollar, removed import restrictions, completely changed the management of the public service. Control of monetary policy was handed over to the Reserve Bank, GST was introduced, and the financial sector was massively deregulated. I'm getting out of breath. Together, these reforms were known as Rogernomics. If you talk to economists today, most of them will tell you that some type of significant reform was necessary. But Rogernomics caused a lot of pain for many New Zealanders. Lots of Kiwi farms and factories were only making ends meet thanks to import restrictions and government subsidies. And when those were removed, the impact was crushing. 
The other big victims of Rogernomics were public servants. Labour converted a lot of old government departments into state-owned enterprises. They were meant to act like private companies and run themselves more efficiently. This saved taxpayers a lot of money, but it also caused huge job cuts. Tens of thousands of public servants resigned or were made redundant. The spike in job losses hit Māori particularly hard. By 1992, one in four working-age Māori were unemployed. Long-term trends towards improving Māori health reversed and Māori mortality rose. But other people were making big money from Rogernomics. The government sold off things like our banks, our telco and forests to private companies, which meant big opportunities for investors. The 1980s were a golden age for investors all over the world. Overseas money flooded into Aotearoa to take advantage of our high interest rates, our newly deregulated financial industry and our booming share market. A lot of Kiwis went along for the ride. In 1986, the National Business Review published its first ever New Zealand Rich List, celebrating the success of super wealthy New Zealanders. And lots of ordinary Kiwis mortgaged and remortgaged their homes so they could raise cash to jump on the bandwagon. By 1987, about 40% of adult New Zealanders owned shares, and the market had risen 600% in just five years. That was more than twice as fast as the USA. It was a huge bubble, and on October 20th, 1987... It burst. A sharp fall on Wall Street spooked investors and the New Zealand share market plummeted. Over the next four years, three quarters of its value was wiped out and 200 companies collapsed. Roger Douglas and his allies saw this crisis as an opportunity to justify even more reforms. He wanted the widespread sale of state assets, deep cuts to defence and foreign affairs spending. Most significantly, he wanted everyone to pay the same rate of tax, no matter their level of income. These proposals got a lot of criticism from the union movement. The unions felt Labour was abandoning its roots as the party of workers. Prime Minister David Lange said a real wake-up call came in the 1987 election, when Labour won over a lot of right-wing voters who usually supported National. It set me to think, What on earth have we done? That we come within 400 votes of winning the true blue seat of Remuera? And that struck me as being a dangerous flirtation and an act of treachery to the people we were born to represent. In his second term, Longy pushed his government to slow down the pace of change, but Douglas and his supporters pushed back. Longy had started off as one of the most popular Prime Ministers in New Zealand history. He was a fantastic public speaker. There was this famous exchange when he defended New Zealand's nuclear-free stance in a debate at the Oxford Union Society. Whether you are snuggling up to the bomb or living in the peaceful shadow of the bomb, New Zealand benefits, sir, and that's the question with which we charge you, and that's the question with which we would like an answer, sir. And I'm going to give it to you if you hold your breath, just for a moment. <laughs> I can smell the uranium on it as you lean towards <laughs> But the conflict over Rogernomics eroded his support. The debate raged inside the Labour Party and eventually David Longy resigned as Prime Minister. 
Long term, the Longi government's reforms gave New Zealand a more open and market-led economy that could adapt more quickly to a changing world. But most of the people involved in that government have since said they should have done more to cushion the impact on ordinary Kiwis. When Longi left Parliament for the final time, he gave a speech which reflected on the effect of his government's reforms. I want to thank those people whose lives were wrecked by us. They had been taught for years they had the right to an endless treadmill of prosperity and assurance, and we did them. People over 60 hate me. They hate me because I was the symbol of what caused that assurance of support and security to be shattered. Longy was replaced as Prime Minister by his deputy, Geoffrey Palmer. Palmer served as Prime Minister for a year before he was replaced by Mike Moore, about two months ahead of the 1990 election. Geoffrey Palmer made some efforts to shift the government's focus away from controversial economic policies and towards reforming our environmental, planning and constitutional law. But New Zealanders were fed up with the infighting and dysfunction. In 1990, Labour suffered one of its worst defeats in electoral history and Nationals swept to power with a gigantic majority. The National Party's leader, Jim Bolger, had campaigned against the worst effects of Rogernomics. But instead of repealing Labour's economic reforms, National reinforced them, then went further. In 1991, National's Finance Minister Ruth Richardson delivered what she proudly described as the mother of all budgets. Richardson's political opponents had a different nickname for her policies. They called them Ruthanasia. The 1991 budget dramatically reduced spending on social welfare. Unemployment and sickness benefits were slashed and universal family benefits were abolished. Richardson also introduced fees for health services and tertiary education. These cuts, combined with the job losses from Rogernomics, had a heavy impact on the poorest New Zealanders. Between 1990 and 1995, the proportion of children living below the poverty line doubled. Another big move of the Bolger government was to clamp down on the union movement by ending compulsory union membership. Throughout most of the 20th century, unions had been a dominant force of New Zealand life. They held enormous political and economic power. But in the 70s and 80s, that power had waned. There were all kinds of restructures and reforms, but the 1991 Employments Contract Act was the knockout punch. Union membership collapsed and their power went with it. These days, less than one in five Kiwi workers are union members. By this point, Kiwi voters were getting frustrated. Neither Labour nor National had actually campaigned on any of this stuff. It felt like both parties were trying to reshape New Zealand without asking voters if they wanted it reshaped. Trust in politicians was at an all-time low. According to polls, they ranked alongside second-hand car dealers as the least respected people in the country. So... When voters were offered a chance to shake up New Zealand's electoral system, they grabbed it. In 1993, there was a referendum to replace the old first-past-the-post voting system with mixed-member proportional. And MMP got 54% of the vote. One of the biggest changes of MMP was that minor political parties could now have a major impact on politics. That encouraged a lot of Labour and National MPs to go off and set up their own parties. And when we say a lot, we mean a lot. 
By the time of the 1996 election, there were seven different parties in Parliament, plus one independent MP. MMP also increased Māori representation in Parliament. In 1996, the proportion of Māori in Parliament doubled from 6 to 12%. In the 2017 election, it was 29%. Women's representation has also doubled since MMP came in. As of 2019, 40% of MPs were women, and New Zealand had been led by a female Prime Minister for 13 of the last 23 years, the first being Jenny Shipley after she rolled Jim Bolger in 1997. By 1999, New Zealand famously had women in most of the country's top jobs. Helen Clark was Prime Minister, Dame Sylvia Cartwright, Governor-General, Margaret Wilson was Attorney-General, and Sean Elias, Chief Justice, while Theresa Gatting was CEO of Telecom, New Zealand's largest company. Finally, the introduction of MMP seems to have coincided with a shift away from huge, enormous reform efforts which had dominated the late 20th century. Don't get me wrong, there have been some significant law changes since 1996. The legalisation of same-sex marriage, for example, in 2013, that was a huge victory for the LGBT community. But recent governments haven't tried anything near as dramatic as Rogernomics or the mother of all budgets. Is that because of MMP? It's really hard to say. And to be honest, this is all getting a bit close to the present to count as history, so let's wind back and have a look at Aotearoa's recent past from a different perspective. Let's go with the economy first. Many Kiwi businesses were crushed by the removal of subsidies and import restrictions under Rogernomics. Some industries completely collapsed, like you don't see cars or TVs made in New Zealand anymore. There were also huge effects on New Zealand agriculture. The removal of subsidies meant our farmers had to focus more on what was actually profitable to sell overseas. This sparked a big shift away from sheep farming. In 1982, there were more than 70 million sheep in New Zealand. Today, it's more like 27 million. Those sheep have been replaced by stuff like kiwifruit, deer, wine. But the biggest boom has been dairy. In 1996, there were roughly 2.7 million dairy cows in New Zealand, but by 2014, that had risen to nearly 5 million. A big chunk of that growth has been in the South Island, where new irrigation technology made it possible to convert sheep farms to dairy. Those conversions brought white gold to the regions, but they've gone hand-in-hand with a lot of concern about environmental damage, because irrigated farms tend to release more pollutants into rivers and streams. And that's kind of a problem, given the other big economic success story of the 21st century relies heavily on Aotearoa's clean green image. New Zealand's natural wonders have drawn visitors from overseas as far back as the 19th century. But ever since the first international jets started arriving in New Zealand in 1963, the number of tourists has exploded. In 2017, tourism overtook dairy as our biggest export earner. And these days we see nearly 3 million tourists visiting New Zealand every year. Now let's have a look at the people of Aotearoa. For a start, the Kiwi population has been getting older. In 1975, the median New Zealander was 25 years old. Today, they're nearly 40. That's mostly been driven by a decline in birth rates, plus improvements in healthcare, which mean people are living for longer. 
Also, the median age would be even older if it hadn't been for a boom in immigration over the past few decades. The immigration boom has made Aotearoa's population younger and also more ethnically diverse. Up until the 1950s, the government discouraged immigrants from outside the United Kingdom, the former British Empire and Western Europe. But when that policy was ended, we started to see more diversity in our immigrant population. By 1971, the proportion of migrants from outside the British Commonwealth had doubled to nearly 30%. In 1987, we removed immigration restrictions based on race or country of origin. The focus shifted to bringing in people who had skills which were lacking in Aotearoa. Basically, this is still the policy we have today, and it's brought in a huge range of people from all around the world. As of 2013, 12% of the population identified as Asian and 7% as Pacific Islanders. The last 30 years or so have also seen all kinds of new changes and challenges for Māori people. Many iwi and hapū have spent those decades locked in negotiations with the Crown to redress breaches of the Treaty of Waitangi. There's been a lot of disagreement both within te ao Māori and within government over how this process should work. A flashpoint came in 2004 when Helen Clark's Labour-led government proposed the Foreshore and Seabed Act. This act would have stopped Māori from going to court to claim customary rights to parts of the New Zealand coastline. Thousands of people marched to Parliament in protest. It led to the formation of the Māori Party and sparked a fierce debate over race relations. This has all been part of an ongoing struggle to reassert tenoranga tiratanga and mana motuhake. There are still lots of concerns on issues ranging from the support of te reo Māori to persistent inequalities in health, wealth, education and justice. But that's not to say there hasn't been progress. The gaps between Māori and Pākehā and so many social statistics such as life expectancy, education rates and home ownership have proved stubborn but mostly they're closing. Many iwi who have settled their treaty claims have become major economic players. Ngāti Wātua, Ngaitahu and Tainui hold assets which are worth billions of dollars. The Māori renaissance which got started in the early 70s has kept on rolling. Kapahaka has gone from strength to strength and increasing numbers of Māori are wearing moko and there's a renewed focus on teaching Māori tanga in universities in Wānanga. And more non-Māori are getting into the Māori culture too. Nowadays, Te Reo Māori has a growing presence across New Zealand culture. Matariki are celebrated in most schools, plus the All Blacks have finally learned how to do the haka properly. OK, look, we've talked about politics and economics and people, and it's really hard to see how any of this stuff will play out in the long run. Some of the things which happened over the last few years might seem super important today, but maybe when people look back on it in 50 or 100 years' time, they'll just be like, meh, who cares? On the other hand, there's probably some stuff happening right now that lots of us are just quietly ignoring, but people in future will be like, seriously? How the hell weren't people freaking out about that? Did they not realise how hugely, enormously important that was going to be? We're talking about climate change, right? Yeah, we're talking about climate change. Look, conversations about climate change have had a really long history in Aotearoa. Like, here's an article from the Waitemata and Kaipara Gazette. The furnaces of the world are now burning about 2 billion tonnes of coal a year. When this is burned, uniting with oxygen, it adds about 7 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere yearly. 
This tends to make the air a more effective blanket for the Earth and to raise its temperature. The effect may be considerable in a few centuries. That article was published on the 14th of August 1912. As far as anyone can tell, it's the first time a New Zealand newspaper mentioned what's now known as the greenhouse effect. Over the last hundred years since that article was written, the world has warmed by about one and a half degrees. Based on everything we know about climate science, we only have a few decades left to radically reduce carbon emissions or risk a worldwide catastrophe. And climate change isn't the only challenge modern Aotearoa is facing. There's new disruptive technologies like lab-grown meat, AI and social media. There's new geopolitical challenges with the rising power of China. There's new threats to health with antibiotic-resistant microbes. Plus, we still have to deal with the older problems. What do we do about recessions and natural disasters and housing shortages and who should wear the number 10 jersey for the All Blacks? It can all seem kind of overwhelming. But the thing is that while the exact challenges we're facing right now are different from the ones our ancestors faced, the future always looks like a scary place. And hopefully looking back at the challenges our tūpuna have faced will give us some inspiration to overcome our own challenges or even just learn from their mistakes. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the whole reason we made this series, so hopefully it's worked. Anyway, time to wrap things up? Yeah. I'm William Ray. And I'm Lee Mademan McLaughlin. Thanks so much for joining us in this voyage through the history of Aotearoa. The Aotearoa History Show is a 14-part series made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Digital Innovation Fund. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. It's written and produced by William Ray and co-presented by Lee Marama McLaughlin. The sound engineer is William Saunders and it is directed by Duncan Smith. Historical fact-checking by Basil Keane and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, especially David Green. Archival audio from Nga Taonga Sound and Vision. A video version of the Aotearoa History Show is available online via the RNZ webpage or on YouTube.